Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. Close enough, close only counts in horseshoes and grenades. You ever heard that phrase? It was coined by Frank Robinson, who was a major league ball player. He was being interviewed in Time Magazine in 1973, and he was talking about the dynamics of baseball, and he says, close doesn't count in baseball. Close only counts in horseshoes and grenades. I think there's a measure of truth in that. Um, In golf, today's the U.S. Open, so later this afternoon you might see some golf on uh, the airwaves as they're playing at the Los Angeles Country Club. In golf, if you're playing among friends and you hit the ball and it's near the hole, sometimes if you're not playing for a serious Uh, for a serious uh, tournament or anything like that, if you're playing among friends, they'll say, oh, that's close enough, and they'll give you a gimme. It means that you don't have to put out that last stroke. And for some players, you might want to make them earn that last putt. If I was playing with Darren, I wouldn't give him a gimme at all. I'd make him earn every single shot. I would. We're like that. We're close like that. But maybe you would say, oh, that's close enough. That's a gimme. You can have that putt. We're going to talk about a phrase today where close enough isn't, where close enough just isn't. We'll get there towards the end. The last few chapters we've studied is kind of a partial fulfillment of what Jesus promised to Paul at the moment of his conversion. Way back in Acts chapter 9, God said this, or Jesus said this to uh, to Ananias, you need to go for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles, to the kings as well as to the people of Israel. Way back in Acts chapter 9, that promise was gifted or granted to Ananias on behalf of, or to Saul on the behalf of Ananias. And now we see Paul, he's standing here in Acts chapter 26, and he's standing before a man whose great-grandfather had tried to kill Jesus as a baby. Agrippa's grandfather had John the Baptist beheaded. Agrippa's father had martyred the first apostle James, and now Agrippa himself is Paul's audience. Agrippa's family history made it unlikely to receive Paul warmly, but what follows is this discussion between Paul and Agrippa where Paul shares his story. We're going to begin in verse number one this morning. Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and he made his defense. He says, I consider myself fortunate that is before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusation of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, we've already gone through Agrippa's family history. Why would Paul say, I'm so glad I get to present my case to you, Agrippa? Well, first of all, it allows Paul to actually present the evidence or really the lack of evidence that's before him by the Jews and by the Romans. There's no evidence that would persecute or would prosecute Paul successfully. And so he's really pleased to have an audience where he gets to present this lack of evidence. But also there's a part of Paul, no doubt, who's just looking forward to share the gospel to someone in power like Agrippa. Paul continues in verse four. He says this, my manner of life from my youth 
spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Now, if you were to, um, if you were to go to someone in church and, and say, my goodness, haven't you lived your life like a Pharisee? And you smiled really big. We would consider that probably uh, an insult, right? We have a different view of the Pharisees based on what we have in hindsight in the New Testament. In the culture that Paul is talking to, he's saying, there's no doubt that any Jewish person that would look at my life, look at my pedigree, look at what's happened in my life, they would say, my goodness, he has been a strict Pharisee. In other words, he has lived up to the law. Verse 6, now I stand here on trial, Paul says, because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Paul made it clear, both in his heart and his mind, he remained a faithful Jew. And yet his trust in Jesus was an outgrow of his trust in the hope of the promise made by God. Since Acts chapter 9, he had learned to trust God. And the longer he trusted God, what he realizes is the more he could trust God. And the more he trusted God, he knew that the longer he would trust God. Life is a lot like this, isn't it? The more that you trust God the longer you end up trusting God. And the longer you end up trusting God, the more that you trust God. Here's uh, Paul in Acts chapter 9. And when you see his conversion under the circumstances that it had, over the course of the last uh, 19 chapters or uh, 17 chapters, we have seen different things happen to Paul. But one thing has remained true. God's word has not failed Paul. People have come to Jesus, and through every scenario, Paul has seen God's hand provided for him. And every single time God's hand provided for him, it would give Paul the opportunity to trust God more. So while this opening point of our message is a little bit like a Dr. Seuss riddle, it is very true in our life that the longer you trust God, the more you will trust God. And the more you do trust God, the longer you will trust God. In fact, if you want to live, uh, if you, uh, one of the pieces of advice um, I've been thinking about, um, my brother obviously in preparing some remarks for Thursday, and um, about 15 years ago, uh, we were spending some time together and I was going through a pretty difficult time in my life, and, uh, and he, uh, he was living in uh, Woodburn, Camby area at the time, and I was here in Roseburg, and on one of the times I went and visited him, uh, he said, Danny, the next time, he called me Danny, by the way, all my family does, please don't try to do that, it just sounds, sounds weird when anyone else tries to do it, but family gets away with it, and he said, Danny, the next time you come, I want, I want you to have written your obituary, and he said, I, I just want you to think about what you would like people to say when you're gone. And the lesson for me from him was, you should live with the end in mind, right? So here's the thing, if you want to live a life where you get to look back and see all the ways you've trusted God, 
If that's something you want to hold on to and people get to say about you and you get to live, uh, uh, live such a life where 20, 30, 40 years from now, you would be able to look back on your life and say, man, I'm so glad I trusted God in all these areas. You know what that means? That means you have to live with the end in mind. And so today that means this, you have to trust him with your finances today. That means you have to trust him with the relationship that doesn't make sense today. That means you have to trust him with uh, the scenario that's in front of you. You don't know how to go left or right. You need to trust him today because you'll never get there unless you trust him here, right? The longer he trusted God, Paul, the more that he would trust God. And the more he trusted God, the longer he would trust God. He knew this was part of it. Paul continues in verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. What's he talking about here? Read this again. I myself was convinced that I ought to do so many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. What's he talking about? He's talking about the... Per- I don't Siri doesn't know either, apparently. Um, he's talking about persecution. I heard someone say stoning. He's talking about all these things he did out of the passionate pursuit of the law rather than a relationship. He's, he goes on to explain, verse 10. And I did so in Jerusalem. Paul says, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So before his conversion, Paul was an angry man who was passionate about pursuing the law, the letter of the law. And so before his conversion, Paul believed he must persecute those who were following Jesus because they were living their faith outside of the law. So he imprisoned some of them. He killed some of them. He forced them to renounce Jesus to whatever extent he could. He goes on and tells his story, verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. Verse 14, and when he had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. I wonder what emotions Paul had as he just shares his story. It's a beautiful theme that we've uncovered these last number of weeks in the book of Acts that Paul has his opportunity to simply share his story with people when given the opportunity. This is the most lengthy uh, portion of his testimony we see from his own words. And he notes that this mission was blessed by those in religious power, his mission to go to Damascus. And yet he was literally saw seeing the light before figuratively seeing the light. Verse 15, he says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. This changed Paul's paradigm. He immediately understood that Jesus was alive, not dead. He understood that Jesus reigned in glory. He realized that persecuting the followers uh, was persecuting Jesus. 
And seeing Jesus for who he was ignited a response. Now, church, if we are to, if we have really seen Jesus for who he is, it should ignite a response to us. In fact, the transformation in his mind led to a transformation in his life. You know, seeing Jesus for who he is should should ignite a response in us. Um, you know, a common, a common phrase in church culture today is, is, is we get to come to Jesus as we are. And that's 100% correct. But if we've truly met with Jesus, there's no way we leave the same. There's just no way. We don't get to stay the same when we come face to face with glory, with love, with mercy, with Jesus. In fact, what we believe should impact our behavior. And since attending this church, if your behavior has not changed at all, I would say we're doing a pretty poor job as a church. Paul had to repent. He had to make a transformation in his mind that led to a transformation in his life because up until this point, most people would say Paul lived a moral life. The Jewish people would say, well, yeah, Paul's a Pharisee. He lived a moral life. And so I would beg of you to answer this question. If he lived a moral life, what did he have to repent from? Well, he had misguided religious zeal. He had wrong ideas about who God was. He persecuted people in the name of his faith. There was plenty for him to repent from, but that repentance would only come with the come to Jesus, literal come to Jesus meeting. I would say to you, church, that, that if we've met Jesus, there should be parts of our life that are changing. If we've met Jesus, there's parts of our life that should be transformed. And if, and if Sunday morning doesn't lead to a transformation in your heart, if, if, you're, if, you're, if the groups that you're studying the Bible with, if your relationship, if your prayers, if your time with Jesus does not lead you to a transformation in your life that begins with your mind, we need to reevaluate our relationship. He continues in verse 16. And now again, he's talking about Jesus speaking to him. So these are Jesus's words from Paul's memory. Rise and stand up on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to anoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. And he promises them a few things once he sends them to the Gentiles. He says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So the religious leader sent Paul to Damascus. He's converted there. He literally sees Jesus. Then he figuratively, uh, figuratively, metaphorically sees the light as well. Paul speaks about being a witness. Jesus then tells Paul these things that will happen once you become a messenger. You will help people go from darkness to light. You'll help people turn from the power of Satan to God to receive forgiveness and to receive an inheritance. And as he's speaking, let's just remind ourselves where he is. He spent two years with Festus, right? 
Festus was the one who, uh, who was hoping that, um, that Paul would uh, buy his freedom. Festus would uh, bring his wife along to listen to Paul numerous times. And along that whole interchange, uh, Luke records that Festus was hoping to receive something from Paul, perhaps to buy his freedom, which was not uncommon. Festus then uh, hands him over to whom? Anybody remember? Felix. Felix now has an audience In this conversation, Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to the highest court. I I am a Roman citizen, and I want to avail myself of this opportunity. Felix and Agrippa meet kind of like in a behind-chambers kind of conversation, and he says, what are we going to do about this? And Felix kind of explains the situations to Agrippa, and Agrippa says, okay, this is what we'll do. Remember the verses right up leading up to this? There is this huge pomp and circumstance there was this huge amount of effort and energy to, uh, to adorn this place of gathering. There was, uh, uh, there was officials from every land, or, or from every rank. Agrippa is there. And Paul has to, in this presence, in this hall, in this over-the-top royal hall, He's sharing his story. And no doubt, as he's sharing the story of his conversion, as he's sharing the story of God uh, using him to spread the gospel to all these people, he has this personal message to Agrippa. And if you read his, if you listen to Paul's words, you'll hear him talking directly to Agrippa because he's making an invitation to Agrippa to become one of those who are sanctified by faith. He's making an appeal to Agrippa to go from darkness to light, to go from forgiveness of sins now to to having the inheritance in God. He's making his case directly to Agrippa. Verse 19, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the, Judea, the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So Paul makes a strong case before Agrippa and all there as to why he preached and lived the way he did. Verse 21, this is the reason. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and they tried to kill me. To this day, I had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both, both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. And what would they say would come to pass? That Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. He presents his case very simply. It wasn't because of a political revolutionary or because he offended the sanctity of the temple that he was being on trial. It was because he sought to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, the outsiders. Paul stated his unswerving commitment to the same gospel. And this was the three main points of Paul's gospel, his preaching, that Jesus died for our sins. He resurrected and defeated death. And now everyone should hear the gospel. Not only just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. Everyone should hear the gospel. Verse 24, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, 
could not handle it. It says, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning and dry... What does he say? Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. So Paul says, I'm not out of your mind. You're out of your mind. He doesn't say that. Um, He says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. And then he says this, for the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. In other words, we haven't hid any of this. The message of Jesus has been going throughout all the land. This is not a secret. This was not done in covert manners. Festus thinks he's crazy. By the way, the evidence that he's crazy is is pretty sound evidence. He's imprisoned and he's pretty okay with it. He insisted that God could raise the dead. He experienced a heavenly vision and changed his life because of it. He didn't care that he was bound. And he believed in a hope and a redemption for all humanity, not just Jews and not just Gentiles. Again, the evidence that he was crazy was there. Festus had recently come from Rome and probably didn't know what happened with the early church movement, yet Agrippa had known And we come to the end of this chapter in Acts chapter 26. Look at verse 27 as we continue. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Now it's interesting, he is talking about the prophets here with King Agrippa, isn't he? He doesn't say, do you believe in Jesus? He doesn't say, do you believe in the gospel? He doesn't say, do you believe in the resurrection? He simply says, do you believe in the prophets? We'll get to that in a moment. Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that only, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Paul used Festus's outburst to appeal to what King Agrippa already knew. And he says, do you believe in the prophets? If you're following in your notes, he wanted to connect what Agrippa already believed to what he should believe. He was trying to build a case for King Agrippa. And so he was looking for the common ground. We've seen this over and over again, haven't we? We've seen this in the life of Jesus. We've seen this in Peter when he was talking with Cornelius. We've seen it uh, through all the book of Acts, especially with Paul, that whenever he was in a, a, a situation where he was presenting the gospel, he would look for common ground and use that common ground to build a bridge. And so what he's doing here with Agrippa is he's he's saying this, you believe in the prophets, right? Give me that at least. If you believe in the prophets, no doubt Paul would have had something to build on because the prophets were forthtelling about who Jesus is. Let me encourage you when you speak about Jesus to your family, to your friends, when you speak about the hope that we have, when you are sharing your story, is to always look for the common ground. And when there's common ground, whether it's in uh, your past or where you're from or your education or what you did or, or whatever it might be, that common ground ends up becoming a bridge for people to trust upon. You know, um, in a few weeks, we'll talk about sharing stories and we're going to give some really practical tips and um, buckle up. You're going to have homework on that Sunday. 
We're going to give you some things to work on to help share your story. But as a word of uh, encouragement, people are really impressed with our talents and our expertise, but they connect with our brokenness. So you might have this education, you might be able to do these kinds of things, and you might be eloquent, or you might be well-to-do, or you might uh, drive a certain vehicle, or you might have a certain background, or you might live in a certain part of town, and all those things will impress one another because we're human, but what connects us with one another is our brokenness. And Paul was looking for something, some common ground to build upon. And he knew that if he could just get King Agrippa to share a little bit of himself, to share a little bit of common ground, it would afford Paul the opportunity to build that trust with him. Paul brought the challenge directly to Agrippa. And this is a necessary part of presenting of who Jesus is, is a call to action, a call to make a decision. And yet Agrippa says, uh, he says there, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? In other words, the language is saying this, almost you have persuaded me to be a Christian. The literal idea is, in a little bit of time, you have seek to persuade me to act a Christian. In other words, there's a little distance between me and Christian, Christianity. Here's the sad truth. However close Agrippa was to becoming a believer, it wasn't close enough. So almost being a Christian means that you almost have eternal life. Almost being a Christian means you're almost delivered from the judgment of hell. Almost being a Christian means you almost have a personal relationship with Jesus. And yet as we started with this phrase, being close enough just isn't. It isn't the same thing. And Agrippa condemned himself even more by admitting how close he has come to the gospel and how close he understood it and how close he came to it while still rejecting it. Verse 30, the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those that were sitting with them. Remember, this is not a private conversation. This was done in their hall. This was a official proceeding. So it was done with many witnesses. When they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man has done nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. Now, let's just hold on to that verse right there. Verse 31. So they've withdrawn, and they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. So it would appear that Paul's case was successful. It would appear that he would be freed. There's nothing he's done to deserve death or imprisonment. And yet, verse 32, Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been free, if he had not appealed to Caesar. So we need to get into some, some, some historical context. Agrippa saw there was no evidence offered to support the accusations. Whatever accusations were levied against Paul, Paul was innocent of them. There was no evidence. And he respected Paul's integrity. Even while rejecting the gospel, he understood Paul's integrity. And so he would return back a verdict of not guilty had the power been with him. 
But we remember in the chapter previous, Paul had appealed to Caesar. So now we have a technicality. Paul could not be set free because he had appealed to Caesar. And once an appeal was made, it could not be retracted. And so with his appeal to Caesar, Paul still would have to go in front of the Roman emperor the way he had with Felix, Festus, and Agrippa. And the appeal to Caesar, his subsequent journey to Rome at the emperor's expense, was also going to be a time where Paul got to speak the gospel and share his story to kings and with rulers. But this is why there's a technicality on why Paul isn't released if you're following along. What stopped Agrippa short of making a decision? Why did he only almost become a Christian? Why was Agrippa only almost persuaded? I want to call attention to just a few people that were around him to help us give maybe some context. One of the people sitting next to him was Bernice. Bernice was a sinful, immoral companion. And he might have realized that becoming a Christian would mean losing her and her influence in his life. He was unwilling to make that sacrifice, perhaps. So here's Agrippa, and he, he understands the weight of this decision by embracing who Jesus is. It means that this relationship that's in his life can't stay the same. By the way, he's right. If you come to Jesus, things should change in your relationships. And Agrippa knew that because he had this sinful, lustful, immoral companion in Bernice, he knew that making a commitment towards Jesus would jeopardize this relationship. And so perhaps he was unwilling to make that sacrifice. Also next to him was Festus. Festus, by all account, was a no-nonsense man, thought Paul was crazy, had tremendous influence kind of a man's man, if you will. And perhaps Agrippa thought, well, there's no way I can become a Christian. Festus is going to think I'm crazy. If he thinks Paul's crazy for, uh, for declaring these truths, no doubt he's going to think I'm crazy for embracing these truths. So perhaps there was a little bit of embarrassment on Agrippa's side. But also he was in this hall, this assembly of a lot of men and women of renown who also rejected Jesus. And perhaps Agrippa said, if I become a Christian, I might end up in chains like Paul. And maybe instead of being on this side of the aisle, I will be the one imprisoned like him. I don't know exactly what stopped Agrippa from being a Christian for almost being persuaded, but it holds a tremendous amount of weight and significance for us today. We need to learn from the life of Agrippa. There comes points in our life where being a Christian means that we respond to God's holiness, to his love, to his mercy, but it means that being in the presence of Jesus ignites a response. And I would ask you this morning to consider, what does that look like in our life? Are there, are there decisions that we're holding off making because of how they might jeopardize a relationship? Are there decisions that we're not making because we're afraid that people might think we're crazy? 
Are there decisions that we're not making simply because the tables will have turned on us? What does that look like? As we reflect and respond this morning, let's pray together as we consider these things. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, um, I'm thinking about Agrippa and I'm thinking about Paul and I'm, I'm just so, um, I'm so burdened that Boy, if we, if, if we truly believe you are our Father and Jesus died for our sins and raised again and the Holy Spirit lives within us, it should beg in us a response. We should, we should be a forgiving people if the Holy Spirit's within us. So, Father, I I call out any unforgiveness in our hearts, Lord. I pray that that if there's even a complaint, you said in Colossians, that we would have towards another brother and sister, that we should go and obtain or grant forgiveness where it's needed. So, Father, I pray for us in this room that if there's forgiveness necessary, either to receive or to grant that you would make that aware in our hearts, especially as we move into a time of communion. Seeing you for who you are should ignite a response of love and of mercy. So Father, I pray for those of us who, who need to be convicted of how unloving or how unmerciful we've been. Father, if the Holy Spirit's in us, we, we need to respond in kind. So I, I pray that you would call out, call out what needs to be called out in our lives, that we would respond in kind with love and with mercy. Father, I pray for those who are, um, who are team Agrippa this morning, and they're almost Christians. I pray for those who are almost Christians, Lord. Um, they, they might be here in this room. They might be watching on the live stream. Perhaps they're listening later in the week. They're almost Christians. They have intellectually understood all the parameters of our faith. They have embedded some of the spiritual practices in their life. But Lord... A meaningful relationship with you is absent in their life. Father, I pray that you would just bring conviction in their heart that they just need to come to the loving arms of a father. Would you bring awareness in our life, Lord, of any place in our life where we're treating our faith like Agrippa is, where we are almost Christians. In the stillness and in the quietness of this moment, Would you move our hearts to repentance? Would you convict our hearts of sin? Would you lead us to the forgiving, everlasting arms of our Father? Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly 
at rosebergfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.